Hello and welcome to episode 47 of Foreign Correspondence, a podcast that brings you interviews with journalists around the world. I'm Jake Spring, a foreign correspondent with nine years experience in Brazil and China. Today I bring you an interview with an old friend and colleague, Jerry Shi, who is now the China correspondent for the Washington Post based in Taipei, Taiwan. As you'll hear, Jerry was transferred to the Reuters Beijing Bureau around the time that I joined the news agency. This bureau in Beijing was huge by bureau standards with maybe 50 people and a lot of young, hungry journalists. I sat in a pod of four desks with some of the other reporters on the company's team, including Jerry and Paul Karsten, who was one of the earliest foreign correspondence guests in episode two. I was an automotive sector reporter, that's right, cars, while Jerry and Paul had the sexier beats reporting on the tech industry. Regardless, we all wanted more and set about getting it in our own ways. I'm in Brazil, Paul is in Nigeria, and Jerry, well, Jerry's career has taken about three more turns since then. From Reuters, he joined the Associated Press, and from the AP, he went to the Washington Post. Generally, you have to leave the country and reapply for a visa when you change employers in China, so you'll hear Jerry mention a few times having these shorter periods outside of the country. However, he was then ejected from China last year, along with a bunch of other American journalists caught up in a diplomatic dispute between Washington and Beijing. That took him to South Korea and then Taiwan, where he is now. And very soon, he'll be moving to India to become the bureau chief for the Washington Post there, responsible for South Asia. Okay, so did you keep track of all that? In any event, we'll go over all the twists and turns in this conversation. We'll also talk a lot about the far western Chinese province of Xinjiang, home to the Uyghurs, a persecuted Muslim minority who Jerry has reported extensively on. And we'll also touch on the border region with Tajikistan, where Jerry tracked down a secret Chinese military base. Anyway, that's enough spoilers. Jerry's a guy I've thought about having on the podcast for a while, and I'm very excited to finally have spoken to him and to catch up after all these years since we worked together. So now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Jerry Shi, the Washington Post correspondent based in Taipei, Taiwan. First off, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jerry. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Jake. So yeah, if you could just set the scene a little bit for us and tell us what the physical space around you is, where you are geographically, and a little bit about what your last week of work has been like. Sure. I am currently talking to you from a bed and breakfast at the very southern tip of Taiwan. It's this lovely uh, little resort town called Kanding with a, with a very happening night market. I'm currently trying to bike my way around Taiwan because in a couple of more weeks, I'll be leaving this place. I'll be starting my new assignment in India. And for many, many people who live in Taiwan, sort of doing the, the Huandao, as it's known, the around the island bike trip, um, it's definitely something on people's bucket list. You know, it's just something that I've always wanted to check off while I'm here. The last week or so, it's actually been pretty crazy. My colleague Ellen Nakashima and I, we just published a piece about a Chinese semiconductor company called Fidium that uses American technology to design its chips, which of course is a, a very hot topic in the world right now, given its sensitivity, how crucial it is to the supply chain, goes into everything from computers to cars to weapons. And in the case that we were looking into, we found that 
Nvidia's chips using American technology actually power supercomputers that do the hard calculations required for China's advanced missile program. And some of the technology and the production also involves companies in Taiwan. And so, yeah, after the story came out earlier this week, there was quite a lot of discussion about this and sort of Taiwan's role in producing chips for sensitive governmental uses in China. And Fidium was put on the entity list, I believe, on Thursday, U.S. time. So it's been a kind of a busy week putting the, the finishing touches on the story and then sort of doing the follow-up stories as it went out. So, yeah, now here I am doing my bike ride. Yeah, congrats. Wow, that's a big piece. Yeah, I'd seen it. And I know, you know, it caused other media outlets. I'm pretty sure I saw Reuters writing stories about chips as a result of it to to chase it. And now a well-earned break to bike around the island. I will say it is kind of funny that try as you might, you will never completely escape tech reporting. There's always some tech angle in China, I feel like, to chase. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and, and you know, maybe we can talk about this later, but, you know, I, I always sort of wondered whether, you know, my heart was really in tech reporting back when I was doing it, when we worked together. And in retrospect, it's it's very clear that, you know, technology just permeates everything today. And I love having had that experience, having had that sort of background and knowledge but it's kind of incredible to see how much of these enormous global issues, whether it's censorship or the technology competition between the U.S. and China, it's all about tech, right? It, it really is sort of just the robots taking over the world right now. So, <laughs> Right, right. Okay, yeah, well, we'll definitely get into that later, I'm sure. But for the podcast, we like to explain how people got to where they are today and taking the very, very long view so if you could start by telling us where you were born, a little bit about what growing up was like, and if you started to show an early interest in journalism or any of the things that you're doing right now. Sure. I was born in the Bay Area in Palo Alto, California. I spent about the first, I would say, five years, so when I was just before I turned one until I was about five or six in Southwest China, uh, where my family is originally from in, in the city of Kunming. So the f my first language turned out to be uh, Kunminghua, uh, the, the local dialect. <laughs> I returned to the Bay Area when I was six to begin kindergarten, and eventually my family moved to Illinois, where I went to high school. And that was also the start of my experience with journalism. I had a wonderful high school journalism teacher. Our school put out a, I think it was a monthly student newspaper called The Gargoyle. And it got me absolutely hooked. We did everything. I mean, I, I wrote sports. I had an opinion column at one point, which was just a complete joke. I mean, you know how sort of high school <laughs> columns can be, right? They're just totally self-indulgent, just you know, stories of me and my friends going out and doing, you know, stupid stuff. But, you know, I, I do vividly remember it. So I was a sophomore at the time. I think the first week of my time taking this journalism class on the student paper 
was September 11th. The first story I was assigned to do basically was to go talk to people at the local mosque in our town, in a small town in Illinois, and to see how this kind of enormous global event was being interpreted by them, how it had impacted their lives. And, you know, I was able to sort of weave together this interesting human narrative about these, you know, local Muslim community that was hooked to this much broader global event. And so that was my first taste of like, you know, this is a chance for me to write about these massive, massive issues um, and, and kind of, you know, never looked back from there. I eventually went to Stanford for college. I thought that I might go do something else, but ended up kind of working at the Stanford Daily as well. And, you know, also spent a lot of time kind of just writing for the paper. And ultimately when I was about, I think in my third or fourth year, I actually decided I had an opportunity to go intern at some newspapers with funding from the university, thankfully. So I took that chance. I actually stopped out of school for about a year and then did a series of internships. You know, I started off in a small town of about, I think, 6,000 people, almond-growing community in the Central Valley of California. (laughs) I spent Mm -hmm. my days kind of covering, you know, school board, the courts, the cops. At night was staying in this, you know, mobile home in the almond orchards. And then on the weekends was delivering the papers, getting up at 6 (laughs) a.m. to kind of drive around these country roads to drop off the paper. That was so much fun. That was probably the experience that, the one sort of job experience that completely changed the direction of my life and told me that this was, you know, what I was interested in. I loved the small town reporting and kind of the feedback that you would get from the community. So I was there for maybe like, I think, you know, four or five months, maybe not that long. And then I, you know, went to work in LA for a bit and then went to work in DC covering Congress for a bit and then went to intern at the AP in Beijing. And then at that point, I kind of knew I wanted to do reporting after I graduated. So my last year in university, after I went back to school, I applied for an internship at the New York Times, got that, which set me up pretty well for my postgraduate career in the business. Cool. Wow. Let's see. What what did you study in college? Because I'm pretty sure Stanford's one of those that doesn't have a journalism degree, right? Yeah, not like Northwestern does. It has a master's program, but I studied economics and had a minor in Japanese, of all things. Oh, huh. Interesting. What period were you in Beijing for, for the AP? So I went to Mongolia in the summer of 2008 because I had met a woman at Stanford, actually, who was working on sort of developing Mongolia's nuclear industry. And I asked the AP, I said, could I sort of have kind of a letter of, I guess, you know, introduction, uh, if you would, and go just check out Mongolia and, and, and report on Mongolia. And then the bureau chief there at the time, Charles Hustler, who you probably know, who has since gone to the Wall Street Journal, he said, sure. And it turns out the first week I was in Mongolia, there were elections that devolved into all-out rioting. So the communist party's headquarters were 
basically burned to the ground. And that was my first taste of kind of being in a situation like that overseas. I was stringing and taking photos for the AP for that. And then after a couple of weeks, a couple of months, I went back to Beijing with the AP and kind of just worked in the bureau there. That was actually the summer of 2008. So I was in Beijing as the opening ceremony kicked off in the bird's nest. And yeah, just an incredible time to be in China. Then, you know, there was this amazing sort of upswell in national pride. And it was a kind of a very positive moment for China. And kind of interesting to think about considering where we are today with China's position in the world. Yeah, that was my first time in China was 2007, 2008. And I was in Beijing during the Olympics. Mm. I'm sure you can still find it out there on the internet, like photo with me with like a Chinese flag sticking out behind my ear and looking super like pro-China. <laughs> and Yeah, who was it? Who was it? It was a different vibe. It really was an incredible time. I was talking to a kind of a Hong Kong protest. He's like a frontline Hong Kong protester, one of those guys dressed in black, you know, fighting with the cops and throwing Molotov cocktails. And, and he was telling right. his story about how in 2008, he was also like, oh, I, I, you know, I'm so proud that China was hosting the Olympics. And yeah, it's just kind of incredible to kind of think back at that time. Yeah, yeah, everybody thought things were headed in one direction. And immediately after the Olympics, it became clear, like, no, it's not. Yeah, what, what, Jake, can I ask what, were you, what you were doing then? Yeah, so I, that was my junior year. So I studied abroad in Nanjing for the academic year. And then I got an internship at a magazine called Asia Weekly, which is now mm. defunct. That was in Beijing. So I, I was, yeah, living, working for that magazine. And it, it was one of these affairs where it was founded by this guy who, can I remember his name? He's like the kind of guy who wrote like a monograph called like China or something. He wrote, he's, you know, old, I believe British guy, Jasper Becker might be his name or something mm. like that. And he would like smoke cigars in the office. It was a, it was a weird job, but uh, that's <laughs> what I was doing there. <laughs> Great. Not quite the AP but uh, I, I did go to a couple events and stuff. It was cool. Let's see. So, yeah. So then you graduate and you go into this New York Times internship. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So I was an intern for Business Day in New York. Uh, I think there were, you know, every year they take like five or six of these summer interns and it was great. And I show up in New York on my first day and it's you know thrilling and it's terrifying and uh, they said welcome ordinarily we would sort of keep one of you on after your summer internship something like that but this year because of the financial crisis we're not going to be able to do that and it was kind of a my first sort of shock of what the industry was actually going to be like. Because if you recall, this was in the summer of 2009 when I graduated into sort of the teeth of the economy at that point. And there were serious questions about whether even the Times might survive. I think, you know, they eventually had some sort of a deal with Carlos Slim and, and all that. But yeah, it was certainly an interesting period to be entering the, the industry. 
that's actually do you know Libby Nelson? She told the exact same story about them telling them the first day that they wouldn't be hired on because of the financial crisis. Yep. Libby was in my class, so we were both sitting there in the same room getting that getting that speech. Oh, wow. I had no idea. Yeah, I went to college with her and we worked on the student paper together. Yep. So, so yeah, I mean, for all of us, I guess we're kind of more or less the exact same age. You know, we kind of graduated into a bleak media landscape. And if you do the New York Times internship and you think, oh, I've made it, I'm set, is my impression um, from you or her. Like, you know, you get these things you expect, you know, you've, you've reached the point you needed to reach and... It wasn't that. So so how does that go, and what do you do afterwards? From there, luckily, they were opening a new insert in the paper, a local section for California. So uh, I had an opportunity oh, okay. to go back and continue working for them out of the San Francisco Bureau. So I did that for another year, after which a billionaire, a philanthropist in the Bay Area, he wanted to create one of these non-profit, ProPublica-like, local, public service, investigative news startups, which took over the local section of the New York Times, called The Bay Citizen. So I went there and worked for them for another two years, something like that, and so continued to write for The Times. And then a opportunity came up to go to Reuters, also in San Francisco, to cover technology. And at that time, this was in 2012, I want to say early 2012, this was like the Facebook IPO, the Twitter IPO, it was just absolute startup mania. And I thought it might be interesting to get some experience doing that. So I did. And then shortly after that, another two years, two and a half years after that, covering Silicon Valley, I had this opportunity in China to basically cover technology in China. I always wanted to get a foreign posting. That was the primary reason why I joined Reuters. And, you know, I thought this was going to be my shot to get out of the U.S. with this massive international wire agency, one of the best international news brands there exist. And so I moved to Beijing and the rest is history. That's where we met. Right, right. And just... Out of curiosity, because for people listening, most people think, oh, you get to the New York Times, you stay at the New York Times forever. So you made the move to Reuters, I imagine, because at the Times, you know, you were kind of on a far off local wing. And I imagine the idea of getting a foreign posting must have been very, very distant if you had stayed there. Sure, sure. I also couldn't get a staff job. You know, I was 20... For probably you know twenty five something like that, and yeah, it just the door for me was closed at the time. The paper had sort of said, "Go out, get some experience, and then you know one day maybe you'll come back." But at the time, you know they certainly weren't hiring. Not many places at all were hiring. I do recall, you know, Reuters at that period, if you remember, was actually one of the few places that was going on this massive kind of global hiring spree. And so, yeah, it was just an exciting time to kind of roll the dice with this huge and old and prestigious wire agency where, you know, that old kind of British 
model of like, oh, well, you know, you join Reuters and then it's the, it's the best travel agency that you can have for the rest of your life kind of, <laughs> kind of, kind of things. I'll quote you on that. Cool. So what year was it when you arrive at Reuters in China? Was I already there when you got there? I'm trying to remember how this all went down. I don't remember. I, it was the summer fall of 2014. So Okay, yeah, I started September 1st in Singapore, and it would have been September 15th when I actually got to the Bureau. So yeah, really similar times. And yeah, I had been a trainee, so I wasn't officially assigned to your desk until 2015. So that makes sense. So you had been to China before, you had worked for the AP in Beijing, but you'd kind of been pining after this foreign correspondent assignment, and you get it. And how did you find things at Reuters, and how did it match up to your expectations, I guess? Yeah, Reuters was just a, kind of a fascinating organization to be at in terms of just the sheer scale, the sheer breadth of coverage, and just kind of watching the information from all corners of the globe flow into this machine. It's it's fascinating and it's it's pretty thrilling. And so you arrive in China and it's one of the biggest, most important stories for the agency not only because of the complex and consequential political story, but also because you have to cover so many facets of its economy, its industries, right? And so it was just very eye-opening to sit in this newsroom that I forgot what the size of it was, but it must have been a total of 50 people if you also include the Chinese language service, but to see just pockets of journalists who cover the macro economy, who cover agriculture and oil prices, who cover elite politics, who cover technology and automotive and shipping. It was very, very eye-opening. Yeah, I mean, somebody the other day asked me, oh, do you feel like moving to China, you missed out on the big newsroom experience? And I was like, there were like 50 people, like you said, like it was a big newsroom. So I do feel like I got that experience. Yeah, I, I mean, the China Bureau of Reuters was probably the same size as a lot of newer media startups headquarters in New York, right? I mean, it was really kind of a this humming machine. Right. My main memory of that time is like I get assigned to the automotive beat. I'd come off this trainee program and it was basically like cover economics or cover automotive. So, well, I'd rather do automotive. I get sat next to you and Paul Karsten in kind of a pod. And I talked to Paul on the second episode. And uh, I would say both of you guys, like it was like a constant and I don't mean this in a super negative way, but you guys both like wanted more, like you very much wanted different jobs. You wanted to do general news. You wanted, you were not satisfied. And I don't know, sometimes I feel like if I had been sat in a different corner of the office, I would have maybe been, I don't know, less ambitious than I was, but this kind of seeped in. I'm like, I kind of started to feel that way too. You know, I need to do more. I need to get off this automotive beat. I need to do all this. So uh, I don't know. Uh, to me, it seemed like you guys were very much in a hurry to 
get the fuck out and do something else. Do you remember feeling that way that time or during that time? Or is that just my perception? I do. I do. I, I vividly remember Paul just being incredibly hungry to do conflict reporting. You know, it was what he always sort of saw himself doing and it was what he was reading. It was what really drove him. You know, he ended up doing just that. At the time, I think, you know, I found technology in China very fascinating because we were starting to see the early stages of what would become this full-scale tech war. This was right in the wake of Edward Snowden's revelations. So there was this massive conversation inside China about how do we wean ourselves off of the dependence on U.S. technology, which, of course, would end up to where we are today, which is this you know superpower rivalry over who has better technology. But I thought that at the time I didn't fully appreciate, I think, the magnitude and the consequence of this story. And I think being in a foreign country as massive as China, I sort of wanted a bigger canvas to draw on. I want to sort of write more about Chinese society and Chinese politics and all of these things that generations of China correspondents before us had done and who I looked up to and and wanted to emulate. So I was itching to do that. And so after, I think it was about a year or so at Reuters in Beijing, I, I left and went to the AP where I was able to do just that. Right. And you you go to the AP for how long? And during that time, this is when you started really focusing on the Uyghur issue, if you could talk a little bit about that. I was at the AP for three years. I absolutely loved it. What I loved about it, really sort of from the first day that I entered the organization, was that ability to sort of write in depth, write long, and aim for enterprising projects in a way that I, I felt like was more difficult. At Reuters, it was a very small team at the AP covering China, something like three or four text reporters. And so we had all the space in the world to run, you know, as long as we kind of covered the biggest stories of the day, of the week, made sure that the wire was being fed. But other than that, my editors there were great. Jillian Wong, who is now at the New York Times, she definitely pushed me to do quite a lot of that Xinjiang and Islam in China reporting. And so I think it was in 2017 when I started to really drill down on this issue. At first it was about, I think, Islamophobia more generally, because at that time you could start to see the contours of Xi's Sinification campaign and kind of this general rise of Han nationalism and the hardening of security policies throughout the country, Um, whether that was cracking down on lawyers, cracking down on dissidents. Hong Kong wasn't bearing the full brunt of that yet. But Xinjiang certainly, and, and Tibet, of course, certainly was. And at that point, I don't even know if you remember, there were these stories about Uyghurs who were fleeing the country through Southeast Asia, ending up in Turkey, where some of them then went on to Syria to start new lives or to fight with 
the Islamic State or other affiliated groups. Right. So 2017 was when I first traveled to Turkey to interview the refugees, the diaspora, the Uyghur diaspora there. At the time, I actually did not fully know about the scale of the crackdown inside Xinjiang. So I remember showing up in Turkey to do this story about the flow of Uyghurs out of China through Southeast Asia to the Middle East and interviewed some of the fighters who had actually come back from Syria. And as I'm there, people are telling me that, hey, you know that the last couple of months we've been getting these calls from relatives to go back. Relatives have sort of dropped off the radar. We think that all the students who have ever left China to go study in Egypt or Saudi Arabia or the Emirates had been called back where they've just disappeared into these very strange prisons. It was just the early sort of signs that there was something massive going on. This was the summer of 2017. And so it wasn't until, I think, late of that year when several of the first major reports came out about this vast re-education and detention program. So it was certainly not readily visible at first, simply because there was just a complete cone of silence among many in the Uyghur community who were scared to either talk about it or they had simply had no contact with the relatives back in China because people were starting to be told to stop communicating with the relatives overseas. And so it, it took a long time for us to start piecing together that picture. Right. I feel really stupid because back during that time, I remember eating at this Uyghur restaurant in my neighborhood and some guy telling me something like, they're taking away everybody's passports, like huh. Uyghurs can no longer leave the country, like the owner of this restaurant, like, this is really like, and he's telling me this and I'm like a fucking automotive reporter and I'm like, uh, uh, and I like, don't really think <laughs> anything about it. But there were all these kind of hints and signs and stuff before, like people finally started to piece together what was actually going on. Just out of curiosity, do you know, like, I've always been curious who was first, and I don't mean to make it a competition, but between you and Mega, I wasn't sure who had the first story on the camps. Well, yeah, Mega wrote first. She had an amazing piece where she also went to Turkey, and she published first. I later published, I think it was the first account of somebody who had actually been inside of the camps, but that was not until four or five months later, because in early 2018, we still weren't fully sure what was going on. So people had not yet started doing the in-depth satellite imagery analysis, and there were actually no accounts yet of what was actually the inside of these courses were like, other than a few bits and pieces in state media that obviously portrayed them as very sort of wholesome and useful for job training and things like that. But yeah, so we traveled to Kazakhstan in 2018, the early months, and spoke to someone who had been there. And we were able to reach more people, other people who had been former instructors inside, who had since left China, and we were able to get a bit more. And then the story sort of really unfolded in 2018, Later in that year, the AP continued to publish about this and sort of wrote 
about the forced labor program, I believe. It was very, very interesting to see how slow burn of a story this was. I remember in the early months of 2018, you know, I was asked to give presentations to you know, all sorts of audiences, including foreign diplomats, about my findings. But there was still very, very little in terms of governments speaking out about what was happening. And to see where it is today and, and sort of how incredibly charged and huge of a global issue it is, is quite mind-blowing because I know that I and others at that time probably felt like we were trying to write as much as we could. Um, and by others, I also include people like Nathan Vanderclip of the Globe and Mail, Josh Chin, who did amazing work as well at the Wall Street Journal. But it wasn't yet becoming that kind of major human rights issue. It would take many more months and I think different factors to sort of push that into the global consciousness. I mean, I would say that's the best reporting that came out of China in that era, the reporting that you and the other people you mentioned were doing, like, and it turned into a much bigger story than I think everybody realized. So I guess we're getting close to present. How much longer were you at AP? And then how did you end up moving to the post? I left AP in mid two. 2018. So after about three years, there was a opening at the post to cover China. So I did that. And I re-entered China after getting my new visa in, I believe it was December of 2019. So I was doing my current job really until March of 2020 when the Chinese government revoked visas for the American journalists at the three organizations, and I left. So I've been still covering China, but from Korea and Taiwan the last year or so. Right. So so you said you got your visa in December 2018, so you were there for a little more than a year before you got kicked out. That's right. And... It's become somewhat of a podcast tradition, people telling stories of getting kicked out of countries, whether it's, you know, China or the Middle East or, you know, uh, Chile back in the day. Um, so if you're willing to talk about it, I'd be curious to know how, how it all went down. Sure. It was pretty surreal. I just remember being at home one night. This was during the pandemic. So, the, I mean, you know, March 2020. Beijing was just coming out of its very short lockdown and China was starting to get its domestic cases under control, basically countrywide, other than, of course, in Wuhan, it was still quite bad. And one night I was at home, I think I, I was watching Netflix with my partner Elka and a colleague of mine sends me a message that says, hey, did you see this announcement on the foreign ministry's website? It says everybody who, who's an American journalist for these companies need to hand in their press cards within five days. Um, I think this applies to you. And sure enough, yeah, like that night, you know, just kind of stay up all night, like drinking and like chain smoking on my rooftop with Elka trying to decide like, okay, well, I guess this is real now. It's one of those things that 
we always thought might happen. It was certainly something that wasn't completely unforeseen, but to actually experience it was very, very surprising, especially given that the scale of it, you know, to basically kick out at that point, it must have been like 80, 90 percent of the staffs of these three major U.S. newspapers covering China. Nothing like that had happened for decades. And to sort of be living in it was surreal. But, you know, the process went very smoothly. We were not intimidated. I think, you know, the Chinese government was quite businesslike about it and said, look, you know, we'll help you go through all the paperwork and for you to kind of leave in an orderly fashion. And so I had 10 days or so for the movers to come and to kind of cancel my visa and process all that. And then I was on my way. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And just for listeners who aren't familiar, I mean, this was precipitated more at a a diplomatic level. It was not because people had written specific things but it was in retaliation for Trump placing limits on Chinese reporters in the U.S., at least officially. That was the reason, right? Yes, that was officially the reason, I'm sure. But, you know, they seriously handicapped the ability of foreign news organizations to do, I think, hard-hitting investigative work as well. I'm sure that facet of it wasn't lost on them when they considered taking this step. Right. And this was around the time the Wall Street Journal wrote that weak man of Asia thing. That's right. About China. And that was also kind of thrown in there as an additional reason to do it. Because it was uh, the Post, the Journal, and the Times, right? That's right. And actually, the first sign we had that China was going to take a harder tack against foreign reporters was the preceding September 2019 when they kicked out Chunhan Wang, who had written, if you recall, a story about Xi Jinping's, I think, his cousin. It was a relative who was suspected of money laundering in Australia, which, as anybody who's covered China knows, you're really sort of <laughs> um, kind of dancing over the red line when you write a story like that. And sure enough, they didn't renew his visa. He became the first newspaper reporter to be kicked out in quite some time. And then it just snowballed from there the following months. Right. So how do you figure out things from there? Like what what was the thought process and what did you do in Korea for how long and how long have you been in Taipei? At first, you know, it was incredibly stressful because it was the pandemic. So not only was I being uprooted, it was during a time when so many borders were closed. Korea, we chose Korea ultimately out of Tokyo and Taiwan and Bangkok and Singapore, you know, all of these options. We, we, we chose Korea at that moment literally because it was the only place I could go without a visa and where the borders were open. And so we had made the decision that We had only two people covering China at that time. I needed to continue to do my job in China's near vicinity. I couldn't go to Hong Kong. So basically, that narrowed the list of places I could go. And, you know, considering where borders were open, it narrowed the list even further. So I ended up in Seoul for several months 
And then in the summer of last year, I arrived in Taiwan. Right. And obviously Taiwan is closer culturally to China and is actually an element of the China story more so than Korea. Absolutely. And it's just been fascinating to see how the Taiwan story has become so big in Washington as well. You know, there's been more and more attention paid on Taiwan's place in Asian geopolitics, especially after the national security crackdown in Hong Kong. There's more and more talk in the U.S. policy circles as well of Taiwan's strategic position and its quote-unquote last stronghold of liberal democracy in East Asia and whether China might next make a move to absorb Taiwan into China. I personally don't think that it is as likely as some of the U.S. defense officials have made it seem, but I do recognize that this is kind of an extremely hot topic today. It's been fascinating to watch, and it's been fascinating to cover it. And, I mean, I I used to have my Twitter lists in China set up like China journalists, and then I had a different category for China journalists in diaspora, which was anybody writing about China who was not in China. And that group has grown considerably I don't even know if the New York Times has people in Beijing anymore. Like, it seems like the balance of people are writing from somewhere else. That's your situation. I'm just curious how you go about doing that. And maybe I'm curious also, maybe the pandemic actually helps in that respect because people are getting so much more used to doing things remotely. Yeah, it's been very limiting. It's been a big handicap. What you say is true, I think. You know, the majority of people at the Journal and the Times, and now at the Post as well, we don't have a single person inside China for the first time, I think, in several decades. There's one person for the New York Times inside China versus four, I believe, in Taiwan alone, and even more people who are scattered around Hong Kong and Korea. And for all of us, it's sort of through the looking glass not being able to go places to see things firsthand is frankly very frustrating. It's like playing a you know a ball game with with one arm behind your back. Your toolkit just feels very limited. I've had to do some more stories. I think I've I've tried to do more stories based on documents, but nothing beats the kind of writing, especially kind of narrative journalism that you can do by really being on the ground. And especially because you can't travel now to other countries, that also limits what you can do. I assume that it's the similar case for many correspondents around the world who have regional rules, but China particularly, because it's so hard to just talk to people as it is working inside China, given the political atmosphere and, and the fear that academics and normal people have to talking to foreign journalists. But now calling from abroad is even harder. Right. Yeah. I can only imagine how challenging that is to like make sources and stuff. But yet you guys all manage, difficult or not. I mean, China's always been a very, very difficult place to report. And yet people always find ways to do it. So yeah, tell me a little bit about this impending move to India then. 
So I, I will go in June is the plan. We have a office in Delhi. I'll be responsible for covering a quite a large swath, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Nepal. And so I'm very, very excited. I think India is going through some very wrenching changes in its domestic politics. It's had a rough time, I think, with COVID that really did dent its economic growth That's, I think, has been underperforming the last couple of years. But on the whole, I think this is a country of amazing potential. And one of the reasons I was interested in this job was that I've often felt like you and I, we, when we arrived in China in 2014, 2015, in many ways it felt like a mature, not a mature economy, but in some ways we had missed that rocket ship of 10 years prior, right? Of right. The, the journalism I remember coming out of 2004, 2005, 2006, the incredible pace of urbanization, people getting these jobs for the first time. It was just stunning to see such epic human drama. And I feel like by the time that we arrived in China, we had kind of missed that part of the story. And there's a part of me that really hopes that I could see some sort of transformation in India, whether that's actually possible or not, you know, who knows. But I, I'm very, very interested in seeing and chronicling, I think, in a major economy, in a major country with so much potential at India's stage of development. Yeah, that sounds like an amazing job. Congrats on that. I mean, it seems all your hard work is paying off, you know, you're, uh, you got to a big publication, you're being sent to, you know, a whole new assignment. Yeah, congrats. Oh, thanks. Yeah, because I, I do wonder how you felt. People were all like leaving China in droves around the time you were joining the Post and you kind of doubled down on China. And I wonder how you felt about that if, with everybody leaving. And, you know, I think it was a smart move to, to stay and double down and go deeper but did it feel weird to kind of see uh, so many people leaving? Not at all. If anything, I almost wonder if we should all double down more because it's become very apparent how big this story is. I think it's exponentially harder to cover China today than, than even three years ago when many people were starting to leave. But as I approach the end of this period of what's been six, seven years covering China, the only thing I know for certain is that this story is more important than ever, than any time that I've covered China. And in many ways, this maybe is the story that deserves and needs the most people covering it. So I, I think it was a no-brainer at that point. If anything, I, I feel like now is really the time that as many people as possible should be covering this story. Yeah, I should probably go back and after my next assignment. I... You absolutely should. I mean, you know, the, that's kind of the, the basic quandary, right? It's that it's so difficult to cover. It requires such a steep learning curve. Yet there's so few people who want to do it or can do it that somebody like you who's been there and done that, you know, the story really needs all the help it can get. And as many 
talented journalists with the experience and with the language and with the knowledge, you know, people like you that, that it can, because right now there's so few people I think who, who are covering this story. Right. Yeah. It's kind of amazing how deep the talent pool is for China with people, but with the one drawback of the people don't want to ever go back to China, like, uh, which, you know, I'd feel like I want to go back at some point. Hell, like I invested so much time in learning Chinese, but I just feel like there's such a long list of people who just don't want to deal with living there anymore, which I guess I get it is it is difficult. I mean, in, in many ways, I mean, obviously, you know, the harassment that you get when you're out reporting and sort of the constant sense of the the anaconda and the chandelier, right, of the kind of the the state kind of hovering over you, just out of sight, surveilling you, that's always there. And, that, and you feel this big, I think, mental weight that, all, you know, there's always this kind of background stress and tension there of, of, of living and working in China. But then everybody I've spoken to who's worked in China and is now outside and can't get back in, I think we all feel this incredible emotional attachment to the place. We all miss it. Life there is so incredibly rewarding and, and enlightening in, in, in so many other ways, you know. And so it's just, you know, the highs are so high and the lows are so low when you're covering China. It's, there's nothing like it, I suspect. Right. The China rage got to us all <laughs> at some point. <laughs> so, yeah, next up, let's talk about some stories. The first thing I usually like to ask is, about a story that got away, a story you wanted to do, but for whatever reason, it didn't come off. You, you know, couldn't prove it. You couldn't sell your editors on it. You, uh, reporting trip went horribly bad, but you just like let the idea drift away while you were busy with other stuff. It can be anything really, but does anything come to mind? I think more than a single story, I think maybe it was the theme of Xinjiang. If, if I'm being completely honest with myself, you know, one of the stories that I didn't quite see coming was how the detention and re-education system had sort of slowly started to morph into labor, right? And of course, we know today that the forced labor program is so controversial and, and it's really been what's been propelling kind of the international outcry. Now it's the boycotts. And I was slow to see that in 2018. You know, part of it was kind of my personal circumstances. I had to I had to leave China to switch jobs. But if one thing, if there's one story that I, that I really regret not sticking to, it's that one and executing and, you know, seeing it, reporting it out and doing it. And I often wonder why that is. I do think I have a tendency sort of to have reporting sort of ADHD where my attention, I really grab onto a subject and I'll drill down on it, but do one good story and then leave it. And I feel like so often the best journalism is done when you simply have the focus, you have the persistence, you just have that like bulldog mentality of just 
biting onto something and not letting go until you've really exhausted the story and just keep digging, keep digging, keep digging, keep coming back to the same themes, keep coming back to the same area. And I think personally that's probably a shortcoming of mine that I don't do that enough. And this was certainly a prime example of that. Right, right. Still, I mean, you did some great stories on Xinjiang. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself, uh, but I would say, like, uh, but that makes sense that, you know, you're writing about something and at some point it's hard to stay stuck to one thing. And I, I feel like a lot of most journalists are guilty of that when it comes to some things or others. I mean, I can definitely think of certain stories I've written where it was like, well, maybe I should have followed up on that. And I didn't. Yeah. And, and I think to AP, my former employer's credit, they're particularly good at that. And I think it's very admirable. And I have such huge respect for the AP as an organization and all the editors and the amazing journalists there, like Date Kong, for example, who's just continued to just be an absolute bulldog on this story. And they did the same thing with, for example, their seafood series. They've done the same thing with their reporting, you know, whether it's from the Middle East and the UAE or in Venezuela. They just absolutely get to a story, sink their teeth in, and don't let go. I think that there's so much to learn as a journalist from that method. Right, yeah, for sure. Let's see. So, yeah, the next thing is then a story that you're proud of. If you could pick a story from at any point in your career that you're proud of, tell us a little bit about what it was and kind of the process from start to finish, if there's any story behind the story. Sure. One story that I've always been quite proud of and it's been close to my heart was I published a report in I think early 2019 disclosing for the first time the presence of Chinese troops or paramilitary who were stationed outside of China in Tajikistan and were patrolling Afghanistan. As you recall, the presence of China sort of steadily expanding its footprint overseas as it became a bigger and bigger international player was always a subject of great interest. And, you know, I thought this was a very interesting development and a scoop that I'm quite proud of. The genesis of it went back, I think, more than a year at that point. I was always very interested in the Belt and Road Program and how China was striking these economic, but also political deals with governments all over the country. I was particularly interested in what was happening in Central Asia, because at the time I was curious to see how China was navigating this question of how can it be investing so much money into these Central Asian countries, yet be, in the case of Kazakhstan, for instance, be detaining their citizens, and for the Xinjiang re-education campaign to be so controversial in, in these countries. How can, you know, what is the roadblocks that China's going to encounter politically? And I had gotten a tip while I was reporting out that aspect of the story that actually China had already been striking some of these deals to position its soldiers outside of China's borders. So I was always curious about this subject, and then I think the first time 
was somebody at the International Crisis Group based in Central Asia had told me that one of their researchers had seen Chinese soldiers walking around this eastern part of Tajikistan, but they had no idea if they were based there or what was happening. And then after that, I had seen reports coming from Afghanistan in which Afghan farmers in the Wuhan corridor were saying that they were regularly, periodically being interviewed by Chinese soldiers who had given them supplies, who had come and interviewed them. After that, another source of mine who was a researcher based in northern Afghanistan, I think he was in maybe Mazar-e-Sharif for Kunduz, told me that German hikers in the very northern reaches of Afghanistan had been stopped by Chinese troops. And so I was convinced that there was something happening there. And so in late 2019, I took a trip to Tajikistan, went the long way around, got to this uh, very, very, very remote town, hired a car, asked around, are there Chinese soldiers around here? Are they based somewhere? You know, found a guy who said yes, you know, took me out to, it was another, I think, probably, I don't know, um, maybe 100, 120 kilometer drive into just the most rugged, remote landscape that you can imagine. It was actually, you know, incredibly beautiful. This is right on the four-way juncture between Afghanistan, Tajikistan, China, and Pakistan. High altitude, windswept, kind of, you know, rugged place. And I laid eyes on the base, and so I felt great. I was like, oh, okay, well, you know, gosh, I finally actually found this thing. And then so we head back, and back inside the town... I just had the most sort of, you know, stroke of blind luck where I walk into a store along this main shopping street, which was basically like a like a dirt path with shipping containers with one face of them open. You know, people were just selling like rice and potatoes and, and whatever. And as I'm entering a shop to buy water, there's a Chinese soldier there. He's in uniform and I can't believe my luck. And so I, I go up to him and start <laughs> talking to him in Chinese, and I'm like, "Hey, man, you know, hey, man, like, you know, uh, like, uh, I, I, I can't believe there's another, another Chinese person." And then he's also shocked to see just this, like, you know, scruffy, like, you know, backpacker-looking dude. And I'm like, "Oh, well, you know, so, 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 what are you doing here? Like, how long have you been here? And you know, tell me about it. And you know, I'm from Beijing, you know, I like, just like you, you know." But he said, "Oh, you know, we're, we're from Xinjiang, and we can't really talk about." our mission here, but we've been here for, at that point, I think it was like two, three years, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then the kind of, you know, finally, the, the story all came together. You know, I was back in Beijing. What rounded off the story was I had reached an expert, a Russian expert on Russia-China relations, who told me that he had actually been in meetings with the Chinese cabinet's think tank and the Chinese intelligence agency's think tank, in which they had asked him what he thought the Russian government would feel about sort of China's encroachment into having more and more of a sort of a military and security footprint in Central Asia. And so after that, I put everything together. We did more sort of satellite imagery analysis and published. And, you know, I think just how all the different components of that story, including that 
completely random <laughs> sort of run in <laughs> in this random marketplace with these three soldiers and how that kind of topped everything off. I'm just proud of how I think everything came together. It was it was a story I really liked. Yeah, it was a great story. And I will say it does have the coolest dateline on it. I believe it's somewhere near blank. I can't remember the near name of the town, but I'm just like, oh man, that's somewhere near wherever is such a great like journalistic notch in your belt. It's like spy shit or Carmen San Diego or uh, I don't know what, but uh, that's well, pretty cool. I mean, the thing was that I, I, it's actually it's quite literal because it's not even near that place because. It's in the literally in the middle of nowhere in this huge valley surrounded by these towering mountains. So, what are you going to say as a dateline? <laughs> you know, it's so, <laughs> but yeah, it's it was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Was there? I mean, China is one of these things where like China often will not react to things. I mean, was there much reaction to this story? Did maybe not China, but like the Americans react or did anything happen as a consequence of this? The Chinese did not react. Um, However, the story made quite a splash in India, of all places, which, of course, given their geopolitics, watches China's actions in its neighborhood and in central and south asia very closely and so indian media picked it up there were indian sort of scholars and columnists and people like that who went on to do their own satellite imagery analysis to further the story a little bit but yeah as you know in china often it's it's sort of you know you throw a stone into a well and you know don't really hear anything back and out of curiosity because it does come off probably more cloak and dagger than it actually was, but going to Tajikistan and stuff like that, I'd be curious, were you actually less followed? Uh, You know, it comes off as like, oh, well, maybe this is dangerous snooping on a military installation. But I mean, what's it like reporting in Tajikistan? It was fine until the very last day when I did attract the attention of some locals and had to get out in a hurry. It was a relief to leave Tajikistan. But it's certainly... I have no idea if the people who started to kind of keep an eye on me and, and follow me were working for the government or were just nosy locals, but it, it certainly wasn't the level of harassment and the level of outright obstruction that you n- normally experience in China on a daily basis. Yeah, it's funny how, like, I'm sure, whatever, 50, 100 miles across the border in Xinjiang, your every tiniest move would be followed. But uh, just across the border, it's already so different. Yeah, yeah. In, in Xinjiang, basically, you just kind of show up and wait to be detained. Like, every hour that passes where you haven't been stopped in Xinjiang and, you know, hauled off to a, a police station to be questioned for six or 10 or 12 or 14 hours like every hour that passes where that doesn't happen is is a surprise so right cool well that's a great story glad you chose to highlight that one and i'll uh, post links to all the stories you mentioned uh, in the show notes afterwards the next section is the lightning round so these are faster paced questions So feel free to answer at whatever length, long or short you like. 
Do you feel ready? Sure. Cool. So the first question is, what is a must-read publication that you look at almost every day for your job? The Wall Street Journal. I think their coverage of China is top-notch. They have the best reporters covering China, and they cover China very comprehensively. If you cover China, you have to read the journal. Who's working for them these days? It's everybody from Ling Ling Wei to Keith Jai to Chen Hong Wang to Eva Xiao to Hua Xia. Many of those people are outside of China, but Chao Deng in Taiwan, their editor is now Josh Chin. They do so much incredible stuff. I have the utmost respect for that team. Yeah, they've been great for a long time. Going back to China real time and all that shit, they've been really strong for quite a number of years in China. What is a publication you read, listen to, or watch for fun that is journalistic in nature but doesn't directly relate to your job? I listen to many podcasts. One that I really like, for instance, I really like Fresh Air. I just like Terry Gross interviewing all types of people. But if I get sick of sort of the kind of highbrow East Coast cultural content, then I'll turn to my NBA podcasts like The Jump from ESPN or, you know, Zach Lowe's NBA podcast, things like that. I guess that still counts as journalism, right? Yeah, yeah. Cool. Those are two good shouts. What is the best journalistic article piece, again, whatever medium, that you have consumed recently? And again, it can't be from the publication you work for. Yeah, I loved this story I read recently out of Mexico City by Ahmed Azam um, from the New York Times about the woman who had sort of gone on this vigilante campaign to track down her relatives' killers. I think it was eventually optioned for a movie by some Hollywood producers, but it was fantastic. I, I do want to add one other thing that I, I recently saw that I think is absolutely just fantastic. It was American Factory, the documentary about that glassmaker, uh, the Chinese glassmaker that had entered Dayton, Ohio, took over a factory there, and it just captured so many of these big global themes and distilled it into this one almost perfect documentary is fantastic. Yeah, that documentary was amazing. I was surprised going in how good it was. I think I know everything about like China, US and that sort of thing. But yeah, it was a good new perspective on it. I mean, do you consider that journalism? Because like, for me, it's like that one documentary, like it inspired me so much. I just thought, oh, one day if I could tell a story that good, that touched on so many of these huge issues of the day, but told it in such an intimate way, it would just be the most rewarding thing ever. I think it was fantastic, fantastic to watch. Yeah, that's definitely the ideal. Uh, for the Mexico one, do you, do you remember what it was called or how, how to find it if people are interested? Yeah, the article is called She Stalked Her Daughter's Killers Across Mexico One by One. And so the reporter pieced together the story by interviewing this woman's relatives, court records, things like that. It's like, you know, about a 56-year-old woman takes a handgun, 
travels with a handgun and goes and waits in parking lots for these gangsters to come out who she knows had taken her daughter and just kind of, you know, one by one chased them down until they killed her finally. She would kill them when she find them, found them? Uh, no, no. She didn't kill them, but she, you know, would bring them to justice. Oh, okay. Wow. Crazy. And then if you had to trade places with one journalist, living or dead, and you would have their career, who would it be? I was thinking about this. I, I think maybe somebody like David Halberstam. He is dead. I, had a, I actually went to a book talk. I drove five hours. This was in maybe 2008 or 2007. I drove five hours from where I was working at the time, this small town in California I was telling you about, to the Bay Area to go see him give this talk. I had the opportunity to shake his hand. And then about an hour after that, he died in a car crash. Oh, wow. Um, which was very sad. He was a huge, huge inspiration of mine because I had my editor at that first paper had given me this book called Once Upon a Distant War, a nonfiction history of all of these young correspondents in the Vietnam War, including David Halberstam, who sort of arrived at age 28, and and he and uh, you know Neil Sheehan and, and all these other people were the first generation of American foreign correspondents, war correspondents, to challenge the government narrative about how the war was going and really sort of, you know, helped bring public pressure on successive U.S. administrations to end this continually spiraling conflict that wasn't going anywhere. And he eventually went on to write books on everything from, like, baseball and, and everything and I, and I I just thought that that's a, a wonderful wonderful career I highly 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 doubt I would ever come close to achieving what he did and, and you know his stature and all of his just wonderful reporting and his books but I find it very inspiring that he took the foreign correspondent route so early in his life and had the guts to go up against the American government. Yeah, and that's really interesting, your personal connection there of having met him shortly before he died. And it's it's crazy, these people who have, you know, he had been a war correspondent and he ends up dying in a car crash. Like, that's crazy. <laughs> and then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self? Just read more, read a lot. And really get into the habit of reading books. It's, it's something that I still don't do enough of. But whenever I do, I just find it incredibly intellectually and, and emotionally enriching. And I just think that in this era of social media, like we have such short attention spans. And if I could just go back and tell myself, look stay off of social media, just read more books, it will improve your life drastically <laughs> and your mood drastically. <laughs> Look, it's something that I would tell my present day self. But yeah, it's just the world that we live in today, unfortunately. Yeah, that's totally true. It, it, reading books is such an antidote to, to so many things. Um... It is. It just, it just makes your brain feel refreshed and it makes me feel inspired whether it's fiction or nonfiction, 
um, whatever. It just transports you into this other world where you're not thinking of doom scrolling. It's, it's, it's wonderful. What's your most embarrassing journalism related story? I was, I think 20. I had stopped out of school at that point. I was working for this small newspaper in LA and like people working in LA do, I had the opportunity to interview Patty Smith. And I honestly wish I could tell you this cool story about interviewing Patty Smith, but I completely stood her up. I I completely forgot about it. Oh no. And you know, I I, I think it, it it I I have no good reason for it. It ended up sort of being one of several how should I say um uh failings of mine in terms of time management and in terms of scheduling and in terms of generally being sort of a mess of a 21 year old that I was eventually fired from this job and it oh wow remains to this day the only job I've been fired from still I mean that's not too bad. It's <laughs> it's not too bad. I do wish I had the chance to to meet her. So how did it happen? You just forgot about it or you couldn't get there in time or what happened? I probably overslept or just completely forgot about it. But I had a lot of fun in, in L.A. <laughs> that reminds <laughs> me of like when China rescinded the one child policy and like I wake up and I'm such not a morning person. And I see that Kazu, our old boss, like, I think he was your boss too at one point. He was, he was. Had called me a bunch of times and like wanted somebody to go out and like ask people questions about how they felt about the rescinding of the one child policy, like specifically people got preschools or something like that. And I hadn't picked up and like, I didn't see it till much later. And I was in some ways, a terrible employee. But I, the funny thing is, I think, I don't know that any of us had picked up his call and gone to do this. Like, I don't <laughs> think Paul did, certainly. So I'm like, what a bunch of, like, incompetent people we were. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I always thought he was surprised. Like, thinking back, I'm like, wow, he was surprisingly chill about that. Like, uh, surprised he wasn't pissed at us. Um, yeah, yeah. Reuters was generally, I think, just very intense place where you had to be very quick. You had to be reachable. And I just remember the sheer terror of being on the desk when there was a central bank announcement. You know, right. these things that could move markets. And, and you're sitting at this terminal trying to figure out what you're going to input to flash on the Reuters wire to the world, and it's just completely nerve-wracking because every second counts. Right. Out of curiosity, if there's any particular interview tips or tactics that you have that you find useful at times? You know, one thing maybe is, like, let's take China reporting, for example. When I'm out in the field, I guess it's just to push myself to always do one more interview do one more interview. You never know. That last interview, it's 6 o'clock at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock at night. 
and you're hungry and you're ready to go home, go back to your hotel or whatever. But you never know. It always turns out that that last interview that you get in that day is the golden one. You get the best quotes, you get the best anecdotes. But of course, in places like China or in conflict zones, you know, you kind of have to balance how much time you spend and what the downsides of that are. But but I think sometimes it's just just do more reporting, do more interviews. You never know when you might stumble upon just great material or some new fact. Right, yeah, yeah, I would agree. There's just these moments when, you know, you've been out all day and you have like a 6 out of 10 story, but then that last thing suddenly becomes like a, you know, 9.5 out of 10, like, blockbuster, so. (laughs) Right. Then the next question is, what is your favorite film, book, TV, or other media property about journalists, and why? Yeah, I was just going to mention that book that I had read about the, the correspondence in Vietnam. It's called Once Upon a Distant War by an author called William Prochnow. Cool. And then the last question is, qualifications aside, if you couldn't be a journalist, what job would you do? I would probably love to be a filmmaker or a photographer. Photographer, filmmaker, maybe an academic, like an anthropologist or something. I think journalism kind of sort of straddles many of those fields, whether it's research or storytelling. So I think I'm in a good spot, but but, but probably something like that that's tangentially related. But yes, the, the qualifications are the, are the big hurdle to that. <laughs> and I'm eminently not qualified to do pretty much anything except my current job. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean... You know, it, uh, probably if you, it depends what kind of filmmaking you wanted to do. If you wanted to get into like documentary type stuff, that wouldn't be a huge leap or, you know, photography or, but anyway, that's a good answer. So yeah, that's, that's all my questions. Thanks so much, Jerry, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Jake. That's our show. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Jerry Shi, China correspondent for The Washington Post, based in Taipei, Taiwan. I'll post links to some of Jerry's work and other things we talked about in the podcast description and also on our show page, foreignpod.podbean.com. If you like the show, please subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts, and give it a rating. Beyond that, it would be a huge help if you also write out a review saying what you think about the show. It helps get the podcast more attention. Follow or tweet at me on Twitter at at foreignpod. On Facebook, our page is facebook.com slash foreignpod. Above all, if you know someone who might like the podcast, please recommend it to them. The show is produced and edited by me. Our music is a track called Love Chances by Mackay Beats. There's more information on that in the podcast description and on our show page. Please look for the next episode to be posted on Sunday, May 9th. Until then, I'm Jake Spring, and this is Foreign Correspondence.